the son of Cronos spoke and bowed his dark brow in assent, and the ambrosial locks waved from the king's immortal head, and he made great Olympus quake. Hi, this is Isaac. Hi, Isaac. Hi, Joseph. It's a pleasure. Pleasure is entirely mine. This is on our fourth episode of the Iron Rod podcast. I didn't thought it would go, would go this far. And here we are, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks very much for sticking with us. And as you may know, that we try to sneak in the concept of tyranny as it exists throughout history. And this is why this podcast is a philosophy of history, which would be slightly more complicated if we were a history of philosophy of history. We try not to be too highbrow here. This is fun for the whole family, and we try to do fun things. And if you've ever seen your child read a Percy, no a Percy Jackson novel, you'll know that Greek mythology is popular with the kids. And today we'll be discussing Zeus and Kronos. By the way, if, if your child does read a Percy Jackson novel, t uh, take it out of his hand, burn it, and, and, give him, and give him Homer. Much better. Dissension number one. The co-host of this episode, Joseph, believes that Percy Jackson can be very valuable, but, again, he throws in the modern junk with the ancient myths, and he has Dionysus playing Pac-Man, which didn't happen. But it's definitely something that Dionysus would do, uh, and especially judging by the behavior of, of, of some people uh, who are into uh, multiplayer gaming. Now, so if you know a little bit about Greek mythology, you probably even know who Dionysus is. But you may not even know who that is, and you may not have any sort of reference or understanding of, of that name or of the universe in general. So let me try to introduce you. But before we do that, let's, in fact, speak about the general topic. Our audience may be wondering why this is relevant to their lives or why it's relevant to our show. So before I do that, let me start with a, an anecdote. So people approached Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky and they asked him, should you teach Greek mythology in school? And they probably didn't know the answer that he was about to give them. I think they went there for refusal. Well, I could be wrong. He said, yes, in order to teach your kids how silly myths Europeans used to believe. And something in that vein. Now, well, let me ask you, Isaac. Do you think the entirety of Greek mythology being not true, therefore being a myth, Therefore, being well, we are well. After all, we are both devout Neoplatonics here. <laughs> so, do you think that th that assessment of it being a silly myth is the entirety of how we should view it, or should we should we uh, attribute it greater importance or greater philosophy than that? Well, this is I. This is one point in which I have to completely disagree with with Rabbi Kaminetsky. Um, it's a mistake to view myths as, uh, as nonsense. Myths were not in intended to entertain. Sure, they have, they have a great value entertainment, uh, but, uh, but, the, but that's not their goal. The goal of the myth is to educate. Remember, people live and lived by those myths. 
people actually believe them. But how did they believe them? How can somebody believe that the supreme ruler of the universe uh, would, uh, would spend an inordinate amount of time trying to, um, to have his way with, uh, with mortal women? And why would, an, and even if you believed in it, why would be of such importance? That's because the, the Greek myths have, while people did believe in them in a, as a factual matter, at least in some of them, they also have great symbolical importance. When we're talking about Zeus or Poseidon or Hera, we're not talking just about character, this concrete characters. We're talking about archetypes that... At least those, these were the archetypes in which that civilization thought, and for a very long and for a very long t- time, and uh, actually saw the world. And you can say that to, to a degree, the twelve Olympians represent the archetypes in which Western civilization still thinks when they think about order, marriage, um, uh, law, madness, reason, etc. That's fascinating. And I, I think that speaks to the importance, at least on a philosophical plane, as to how to view these things and how they, the, the very concepts of law and order, war and peace, and other archetypal programs that were existent three, four thousand years ago into prehistory, before there was writing in Greece, um, in, in fact, long before Homer was or you might say or you might say after there was writing in Greece and before there was the new writing ah, in Greece yeah, so during the short dark age that these not so things, short ah, these things uh, influenced life then and the way they saw it is not very different than the way we see it today so before, let you mentioned the 12 Olympians so there is an actual mountain in Greece today called Mount Olympus and Oh, albeit he, he, this might not be the original Mount Olympus. Yes. Ah, it's interesting. So I did read something about that, but I'm not. I'm, I'm refused to allow myself. Yes. Let's n- let's not get into this uh, rabbit hole. L- let's briefly talk about. There's firstly the big three. Think of the big three at the altar. So this is the big three. There's Zeus, Poseidon, Hades. Zeus is the king of the gods. Poseidon is king of the seas. The seas and Hades is is the, the, is the king of the underworld. Now they're overlapping because. Poseidon, for example, is not just the king of the sea, he is also the shaker of the earth. The idea is that, the, that, the, uh, that all land, according to, to ancient Greek cosmology, floats over, over the waters. It's not such, a, such an uncommon myth, it's very common in Near Eastern uh, mythology. It, um, in... the, right, the, the elephants and the turtles and everything. The yes, so the, the idea is that the, the, the guy who controls the oceans would naturally be able to shake the earth. Now, if you are living in Greece or anywhere in the northern Mediterranean, you know that you live in a very... It's a very shaky business. Very... Uh, uh, you, you might not be a Quaker, but you quake a lot. Now, I'm trying to remember. Is Poseidon, in fact, the god of earthquakes? Or is that somebody else? He, he is the god of earthquakes uh, as well as the oceans. Uh, he also invented the horses for some reason. Ah, well... They, and so there, is, there is a good reason so for that. So one of the things that's that we're not going to get into, but we will mention in passing, is the tremendous overlap of different things attributed to, diff- to these different, you know, pagan deities. Now, that's so why, they, firstly, that's we, why we, they fight all the time. Ah, so we mentioned, ah, very good. This, we mentioned Zeus. Zeus is the king of the gods. 
and the show ours of ours is called the Iron Rod, and we found someone literally holding a lightning bolt. So yes. this is he is L- holding the iron rod. Literally holding the lightning uh, literally holding a weapon to, to the universe's head. Yes, and he is also called the king of the gods. And then there's Hades. He's dark. Uh, the Greeks didn't like thinking about him too much because he's the king of the dead and the underworld. Now, contrary to what you have heard or read, he is not evil. Not even, he's not even hostile to humanity. As a matter of fact, he's one of the best gods in the mythology. He is... Oh, I think we've come to our myth. So this is definitely Hades. You know, the, the word for hell today is Hades. Um, definitely associated with evil and depicted in some films. We'll get to our movie recommendation later. But you're telling me that he is not, in fact, evil. No, he's not evil. As a matter of fact, we, the way we think of it, because in our Judeo-Christian world, and um, which Islam is just, is just a branch of, um, uh, and, uh, and basically ev- and even atheists and agnostics basically accepted all its propositions about uh, human life and order and law, uh, g- death is bad. It's not bad because it's unpleasant or because nobody wants to die, it's bad because it's bad, because it's an abnormality, it's an aberration. It was brought about by, by, uh, by original sin, that's a term that you are familiar with if you are familiar with Christianity, or as the Jews call, call it, uh, the, uh, the sin of the tree of, of, of knowing good and evil, and, uh, or the sin of Adam, or the verdict of Adam, or the doom of Adam, if you want to be more dramatic. It's not something that's supposed to happen, but... Humanity have sinned, therefore humanity was punished. And even if you are not a believer, you still view death not as a... At least, well, intellectually, you might think, okay, death is something necessary, but it's not something... But, but emotionally, you are wired already to think of death as something uh, that's not supposed to happen. Something that's not just bad, it's evil. Therefore... Uh, you think that if people used to have a god of death or a god of of the dead, he must be evil. But no, ancient pagans, ancient pagan people did not think like that. The Jews were the weird ones because they believed that they that they are all supposed to be immortal. But that because they, because they believe that they, that human beings are the children of the almighty and ben, and beneficent God. But the rest of the ancient world did not have such uh, such ideas. They understood that human beings are mortal. That was the main difference between human beings and the gods. And yes, human beings, when they die, they leave behind their shadows and, and, uh, and those needs ca- catering for, either by family, both by the families and by the gods, of the, by the gods underneath. And the gods underneath actually are the only gods who are actually interested in, in, uh, in nurturing human beings, or at least what is left of them after they die, um, without any special interest. One does, of course, they, uh, they sacrifice to the gods underneath. Hades is their leader. But, uh, but, the, but basically, they viewed the under... I'll say it like this: The ancient Greeks would look at the underworld the same way we would look at a at a nursing home for for people who are very close to who who lost all their 
capacities and faculties, but are still alive. That's how they viewed these souls of the dead. And, that's, and they would look at the gods underneath the same way we look at the, at the nurses and the administrators. They are, they are, they are, they are performing uh, an essential duty. And they do. And essentially it's a, it's a very good and altruistic duty. Zeus is not altruistic. No, uh, but we'll get to that later. Hades is. Fascinating. Thanks to Isaac for the very fascinating perspective. And definitely a fresh approach. And this is why we are a philosophy show in addition to history. Let's skip ahead because the last one we'll get to in the end. Hera. Hera is Zeus's wife. Her full-time job is chasing after Zeus's trysts and the children that spawn from them. And also to uh, make sure that the inheritance is pure, that the inheritance is pure, that the legacy would go to the seed of, of Cronus and Rhea, not to some to the son of some human trollop. Ah, we'll have to talk about those two characters that you mentioned that our audience may not be familiar with in the moment. Well, speaking of which, on the, in that vein, you know, ironically perhaps, or fittingly, uh, Zeus is the god of monogamous marriage. Um, let's look at the next personality. We have Ares. Ares is associated with Mars. Mars in the sky, I think. And god of war. The god of war, but not war as in the art of war. He's the god of the savage war. The god of slaughter. The god of... Uh, the, the god who grants a swift hilt to, to Achilles so he can run about and kill people. He's the god of the uh, he's the god of the axe, the god of the bloody sword, the god of the uh, the god of the drawn blade. He's the god who each day uh, who each day makes his bed with uh, covers his bed with the skins of the enemies he slew uh, he slew in the day. Yes, and. Um, in ancient times, when astrology dominated one's life, the Talmud says that if you're born in the astrological sign of Aries, um, you be careful, you're going to be a murderer. So, or, 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 or a slaughterer of animals, or you... Or, or you you perhaps chattel it Yes, absolutely. Yes. Or an executioner, it's always... Uh... It's good work, I mean, it's a decent work, you know? Getting yeah. paid the king's chilling. Yeah. Athena, goddess of the city, and other things... Uh, I'm just going to mention one interesting thing about them. Um, Athena, goddess of wisdom, or associated with wisdom, right? She's actually starts as goddess of the art of war, or the or the gods of political of political conniving. Mm. She branches into other arts later. Huh. So speaking of somebody who's all over the map, literally, because he's in a chariot, <laughs> Apollo. God of healing, amongst other things. Uh, also, the gods of the god of the of disease, and plague, yeah. and, really and therefore both, mice. Really playing both sides of the, of yes, the game. Absolutely, nice health you have there. It would be a shame if somebody would ruin it. And he's also associated with the sun, right? Yes, absolutely. But, but he's that, not the sun god. No, that's Helios. It's it's a later association. Interesting. Interesting. Well, let's not get. Aphrodite, goddess of love and things related. Well, sex. I'm sorry. I know it's 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 a family show. No, no, no we're not. A, we are. We already disclaimed we are not a family show. We are um, a prudent show, not prudish. There is a difference. Yes. But we are not a family show. Your family could get wisdom from this. She's the goddess of sex, of passion, and the desires it's inspired. Yes, she might be tangentially 
related to love. Love is sometimes her brother, or he is love. His name is proper. He's Eros. He's he's sometimes described as a brother or her son or her or or some ancient spirit that predates the gods even. But but essentially she's distinct, but somehow but somewhat related to 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 Eros. By the way, she she herself may or may not be more ancient than Zeus himself. Oh, love definitely is immortal, or the other way around. Um, I think she may have been the one to start the Trojan War indirectly. In a way, yes, yes. She she basically tipped the scale in. She basically. Uh, she basically bribed Paris to so in a in a contest in a beauty contest, and his prize was uh, and his bribe was Helen of Troy. So it all comes down from there. Yes, and and of course she nev- and, and of course her punishment was that her son Aeneas became the founder of Rome. So you know these the Greeks clearly did not believe in uh, in cosmic justice, at least not as far as the gods are concerned. <laughs> Fascinating stuff. Uh, the Trojan War, a topic for another time, is the subject of one of Homer's books, mm-hmm. and um, you know, to the extent that it happened and the way it did. It must have been the most significant event um, in the Greek world. In uh, in the let's say it like that the 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 Trojan War happens in a in in a world which was the ancient world of the ancient world. Naturally, we don't know much about it, apart from uh, some archaeology, which was a uh, very extensive uh, work was done this way. By the way, if you want to know about the history of Greece, uh, especially this early period, I highly recommend uh, uh, a series of lectures by by the late great Professor Donald Kagan of Yale. It's available on YouTube. No, uh, and now that is official recommendation from Isaac. Thank you, Isaac. The, the, it's a pleasure. Continuing our fourth episode of the Iron Rod podcast, we are discussing Zeus and Kronos. We've mentioned Zeus and we might get to Kronos first, but first we are covering the 12 Olympians. The 12 Olympians are the 12 deities on Mount Olympus. They rule things and we are up to, we just covered Aphrodite, goddess of love. We're up to Hermes. Hermes is important because, uh, remember we said that the gods underneath are... the only altruistic gods in this pantheon. Underneath, you mean under 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 the earth, under, under the earth, the, okay. the gods of the underworld. Now, uh, all the Olympians, uh, apart from Hades, are not part of the gods underneath. They are the Olympians. They live on Mount Olympus, you know, with uh, where the sun shines and and everything is good. Hermes is the most interesting god because his original function is as a as a psychopomp, and no, a psychopomp is not. Something, something very, very rude you might do to your psychiatrist. A psychopomp is, 
is in Greek, or psychopompos means in Greek, a soul escort. When a soul dies, Hermes is the one charged with, with uh, taking the, the shade or the soul, whatever it's left for, of a soul when a person dies, to the underworld and make sure that nothing bad would happen to to it on the way because guess what the world is a very scary place and no and even and even after you are dead bad stuff can happen to you before you come to the house of Hades and is this why he's given the appellation messenger of the gods oh yeah because that's uh because after uh he was attributed to be the psychopomp people thought okay so he's probably doing all sorts of errands actually the original uh, the, the original messenger of the god was the goddess of the rainbow, a very minor goddess. But, uh, but then he took, over, he, took over, he took over the operation and relayed her to, to, to do uh, other things. Such yeah, a, it's a very cutthroat world up there in the DD business. If you can't make it in the corporate office, then you will be literally sent down from up in the clouds. Uh, after Hermes, we have another of the 12 Olympians, Artemis, huntsman of the gods. Huntswoman, actually. Ah. Uh, she's, uh, she's the, or more correctly, she's the goddess of the wilds. Yes, this is also, this is a g- Pan, the god of the wilds, but there's a difference. Uh, Pan is the god of the wilds of which human beings have no access. He's the god, the, he is the god of, uh, let's say, the, uh, the wild animals that might kill you. Um... Artemis, and that's why Pan is uh, is a scary god, hence the word panic. Uh, the uh, but Artemis is the goddess of the wild, for into which humans might venture to get something. You know, uh, even though the Greeks were agricultural people, uh, after a while there was st- even in their economy the hunter and the gatherer had some role to play. So uh, that's what Adam is in charge of, and because of that. She's also the god of the goddess of uh, of of virginity, of female virginity in particular. Now she's not the only virgin goddess, but she's the goddess of virginity. The reason is because uh, virgin women are outside the uh, the the reach of uh, of men, uh, apart from their father, and the fathers might be very protective. So whenever a man tries to uh, to to tempt a woman to marry him, that's a that's a somewhat risky proposition, if uh, if the father does not approve and if the and if the suitor is too daring for, for his own good, so therefore uh, a lot of the stories about Adam is about people attempting to uh, to do unmentionable things to her and uh, and and her swift and uh, and terrible vengeance against them. Ah yes, don't. Play dangerous games, otherwise you win dangerous prizes. Yes. We have Festus, um, the only god of, of the list, or maybe of any list, who is not good looking. He's considered ugly. Is he also a hunchback or something? He's, or he's, he's, uh, he's limp. He, he's he's limp. limping. He's limping. He's limping. In some in some versions, he's a hunchback. In one, he, he, he means... Every poet wanted to, to give him some something bad, which is weird because he is... Uh, because he's a full-blooded Olympian. He's not a demigod. He is uh, a legitimate son of Zeus and Hera. But he was born ugly. And the reason is because he's, he's the only god who has a day job. He is the, uh, 
he is uh, the god of the arts of the plastic arts. He's the god who creates thing, things. He's the only creator god. Zeus creates nothing. Hera creates nothing. Hades for sure creates nothing. None of them create anything. They they might reshape certain things, usually for the worse, usually human beings for something worse, but they don't create anything. They didn't create the world. The world is not theirs. They just inherited it or conquered it or elected to lead it, whatever, you, whatever version of the story you'd like. Uh, but, uh, but Hephaestus is the, sh- is the shaper god. He actually gives shapes to things. And he, of course, uses fire because fire changes the shape of things. And this is why this is why he's described as ugly because, as the way the Greek thought, who seeks to create beauty, he who lacks beauty. Ah. His uh, creativity means that you that you still lack something. Therefore, Hephaestus is ugly. Fascinating, fascinating. So, like I mentioned, he is the armor and the and the armsman, in that he creates the arms for the gods, and he's the god of um, fire. Last but not least on this list is Hestia, goddess of the hearth. Ah, uh, yes, she is also another virgin goddess, but she is not a goddess of virginity. Well, she is the goddess of virginity. She's not the goddess of protect virginity. It's the goddess whom good vir- good Greek virgins uh, sacrifice and whom they revere, because she represents staying at home. She represents the place where you come back to. She represents warmth. She is the thing you protect. That's why she doesn't do much in the in the in the myths, uh, because her point is not to do much. She doesn't venture out. She she's a, she's a good girl, as they say. She's uh, she just stays there, make sure that everything is ready, and uh, that there's uh, there's warmer brosia on the table from when Zeus. Cut, from when Father Zeus comes back from who nowhere, and uh, so yes. So as we mentioned uh, in the beginning, that there may be certain you know fundamental truths or at least fundamental ideas worthy of exploration in Greek mythology, which is why it is always and ever will be a relevant conversation. And this brings us to the last god, number thirteen, Baker's dozen who may in fact be the 12th, and tell us about Dionysus, who may usurp my whole theory about the insignificance of this, because he is God associated with one particular vice. Uh, yes, drunkness. Well, at the beginning was the God of madness, but then the Greeks reasoned, well, uh, wine makes you drunk, a person who's drunk is kind of mad, so he is the, so, so he's also the God of wine. Or in other, or on the other, according to some scholars, it was the other way around. He was first the god of wine, and then they say, "Aha, wine makes you drunk, so, and, and being drunk is like being mad." Therefore, he's also the god of madness. Either way, this is completely, this is completely maddening because Dionysus is not one of the original Olympians. He is an import from the east. We are not sure from where, probably from the Black Sea region, and the. Uh, and he is, uh, and he is associated with various uh, cults, and and I don't mean just cults in the terms of uh, groups of people who re- uh, uh, 
that uh, assembling to revere him, I'm talking about the first uh, incident of what we might call today a cult. People doing uh, weird and disturbing stuff to others and to each other and to themselves in the name of some uh, principle defined reason. And, the, uh, and Dionysus is the most un Greek of the Greek gods, but we must. Uh, but we must uh, credit his worshippers with the creation of tragedy and comedy, uh, as in the, the, the art forms, because we, uh, they started it. And in a way, philosophy is, was created by people who believed in Dionysius for the simple reason that uh, when you have a definition of madness, you can have a definition of reason. Thank you. And... Um... If indeed he is imported and the others are original Greek, it's interesting how they themselves were managed to be exported to uh, the Roman world. So, you know, Zeus becomes Jupiter and so on, and perhaps even more north into the Norse peoples. Well, uh, Jupiter existed before, existed in Italy before Zeus. Uh, Jupiter is actually a shorthand for. Jovis Pater, Father Jove, uh, which was a initially was similar enough to to Zeus. So when the Romans met Greeks very early on, they used to say, "Ah, Jupiter." So uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I, but, I, I, but, I, I uh, get that. But I mean, large segments of his worship and, and or, yes, or, yes, or, yes. He is associated with essentially, essentially, by the way, as late as the Punic Wars, uh, Roman traditionalists railed against the the Greekization of their uh, of their traditional religion. So that's. Uh... But I mentioned this as an aside. This is something that uh, we want to come back to. Um, just briefly before we introduce, I I thought by way of introducing the tyranny of Zeus, I'd read a small piece here from the encyclopedia. And if you don't know what I mean by that, you were not listening in the first episode. By the way, go back to listen to our previous episodes. Our third episode is on Napoleon III. I think we did a marvelous job on Isaac describing um, the, sh the sheer brutality of the outcomes. Our second episode is Napoleon I. And in our first introductory episode, we cover, uh, as an introduction, a little bit of King Charles and a little bit of King George III, and we introduce the, th the themes of our show. And don't forget that we also discussed Russia. And other things. Yes. A lot of things were discussed in this show. This is a eclectic show with this focus on tyranny. But to introduce Zeus's tyranny, let me read a small passage here, and then I would like your comments on it. So it talks about the Homer's betrayal of Zeus. It says like this, We must distinguish the lower mythological aspect of him, in which he appears as an amorous and capricious deity, lacking often dignity and real power, and the higher religious aspect, in which he is conceived as the Allfather, the father of gods and men in a spiritual moral sense, as a god omnipotent in heaven and earth, the sea and the realms below, as a god of righteousness, righteousness and justice and mercy, who regards the sanctity of the oath and hears the voice of the supplicant and sinner, or suppliant, I think, and whom the pious and lowly trust. So, regardless of whether you agree with this, uh, uh, this demarcation between these two aspects, or if you think it's all combined, and one of the aspects is... It's all tyranny. combined. So, tell us, therefore, 
his tyranny and speak about whether his tyranny uh, was tempered by these other aspects or not. And take it away. Well, first of all, the word tyranny is a very late Greek word. Relatively late. Well, the classical age late. Uh, and it's not a Greek word. It's actually an import from the Lydian language, which is a language which was spoken in, uh, in Central uh, Asia Minor, um, or Anatolia, if you insist, uh, in, uh, in which Turan or Tiran means a chieftain, a warlord. Uh, by the way, uh, we know that the Etruscans, now we know that the Etruscans, who fought the Romans early on in Roman history, who lived in, uh, in what is now Tuscany, named after them, uh, also were related to this group. We know this from genetic material, etc. And we know that in their language also Tehran was, uh, was meant uh, lord or lady and was a title attributed to Venus. We, because, by the way, the Roman Venus may or may not have been uh, a male deity at the beginning of uh, early on in the history. So, uh, and they actually took great pride in calling themselves Tyrrhenians, and that's therefore we have the Tyrrhenian Sea, because in their language it means lordly, but in the Lydian language it means a warlord. And the Greeks, by, when they imported the word Tyrannos, they meant a, ma a person who, who, who usurped royal power either by conquering it or by being elected to it without having a legitimate reason to, without have a legitimate claim to it. There, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's not, but they, so they, they, they come to the conclusion that it's necessarily not a very good thing. So, let's discuss uh, Zeus, is Zeus a tyrant? Now, in, according to Homer, Zeus is, cannot be a tyrant by, the, by definition because Zeus is an anax. He's a legitimate supreme uh, king. He rules the universe by right, and by uh, and he also has a pretty good deal of might. So he cannot be a tyrant, but he behaves in a way. He behaves in a way, and he came to rule in a way which is tyrannical. In, tyrannical in the sense that it's exactly the way a tyrannos might came, might come to power and might behave while in power. The so just to summarize. It seems that Homer might say, well, he's acting in a tyrannical fashion, but that still doesn't mean he's a tyrant because he didn't achieve his, his, his sovereignty. Well, Homer, don't, or, Homer or, doesn't have the word tyrannos yet. It was imported into the Greek language after, after Homer. Mm. And, nobody in, and, and no Greek ever called, uh, called Zeus tyrant. But when... Homer tries to describe a ruler that behaves badly. Zeus is a good is, is a good example. He's a, even though he is an annex, he's legitimate. His rule is legitimate. But let's see, how can it be legitimate? Uh, well, I think I think you're dis dis differentiating between a legitimate monarch doing illegitimate things versus an illegitimate monarch. Yes, exactly. Now, according to... Uh, now we deal with... Now, Homer calls uh, Zeus the son of Cronus. Now, the, but this is somewhat problematic because according to the original myth, or Greek myth, Zeus was not the son of Cronus. Zeus, Cronus, uh, is some elder god, but uh, 
he was not the father of Zeus according to original myth. According to original, uh, according to the original myth, um, there was no succession of gods. Okay, I I I'm bringing the I I'm jumping all over myself. Uh, so there are two versions of the Greek myth of the origins of the gods. According to the most famous one, uh, the uh, in the beginning there was chaos. Chaos uh, brought out of itself heaven and earth or Uranus and Gaia. Uranus and Gaia had their children, the Titan, the Titans, the uh, uh, the Cyclops, as the the Hecaton Heroi, the uh, or the hundred the hundred armed giants. Um, Uranus uh, was so scared of his uh, of his monstrous children that he uh, that that he locked them in Tartarus, which is the lowest part of the underworld, and uh, and Gaia as uh, as pan, as uh, as as way of revenge uh, went through all her Titan children and and asked each of them to to uh, to punish her husband Uranus. Only the youngest of them, Cronus. Uh, 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 had the bravery to do it. He he took a sickle and he castrated his father and he and he threw him down to t- and he threw him or he, he threw him to, he castrated his father and threw his uh, his uh, his uh, genitals to the to the sea and he, uh, so they would never be found. Uh, to this day, uh, the stump of uh, of Uranus. Uh, Genitals try to reach the earth and impregnate her. That's why another Titan Atlas have to hold the difference between have a uh, between heaven and earth to make sure that this doesn't happen. But uh, but uh, a drop of that blood created some sort of monster. Or something. Uh, uh, according to to some, it was the monster. It it was the monster who killed Andromeda, which uh, a certain uh, film uh, gave the anachronistic. Uh, name of the Kraken, which is uh, later, uh, very later uh, myth, uh, that w- and a Nordic myth at, at that. And uh, but according to some, that's how Aphrodite was created. So you know, differences. Well, before we get to our films, let's just finish this segment by telling us. So what happened next in our story? Oh, what happened next to the story is that Cronus is very very afraid. Now, before uh, Uranus is kind of. Uh, uh, retreat to to lick his wounds up in the upper heavens. He uh, he tells his children the Titans. He actually names the Titans. Titans, Titanen means in Greek to strain, to be strained. He says, "May you are you are straining under your own sin. You will be punished for your own sin. You will see that what you did to me will happen to you." And what happens is that Cronus takes it to heart, and he is very very afraid that one of his children would. Would kill, would do something very unpleasant to him, and he starts uh, eating his children while they are alive. Of course, his children are gods, so they are immortal by definition. So they don't die when he eats them. One of the one of the the, the his youngest child is Zeus, because and uh, and the mother and Rhea, the mother of Zeus and the wife and sister of of, of Cronus, uh, takes pity on the child and she. Uh, and she let uh, Cronus eat a rock instead, in, instead of instead of the baby. And she hides the baby, and the baby grows up due, uh, d- uh, due to the kind ministration of uh, of uh, of a kindly uh, goddess. And I'm and I'm not just giving her epithet. That's literally what 
her name Amalthea means kindly goddess, who may or may not be a goat, and uh, and he grows up, and Gaia arms him and and leads him to the Cyclops to give him uh, and he and he assemble an uh, an army of uh, an army of spirits, and eventually he goes to war against the Titans, and he defeats them, and he forces his uh, his father to puke out all his siblings and death and everything. Uh, and that's how and, the and that's how he comes to power. Yes, and that's how the Pantheon and so on is created. And that is the myth, that is the... One version of the, the myth. The series of myths that most of us who are familiar with any version are familiar with this one. Yes. And uh, we will now, before we go to the next segment, we would like to do, we would like to do our movie recommendation. So our first movie recommendation will be Jason of the Argonauts. And that's going to play in the trailer right now. It's a minute long. Enjoy. Of Sinbad, Columbia Pictures presents Jason and the Argonauts, the mightiest band of warriors the world has ever known. Turn back, Jason. We're trapped. Sailing to the ends of the earth, battling against an incredible number of obstacles. Where will you find this miracle? I have heard there is a tree at the end of the world. With a fleece of gold hanging in its branches. In search of the fabulous magic golden fleece, Jason and the Argonauts, caught in the clutches of the towering bronze giant Talos, battered by treacherous falling rocks, taming vulturous harpies, facing the dreaded seven-headed Hydra, battling the merciless army of skeletons. Jason and the Argonauts, the classic story of Jason. A man who challenged the gods. Medea, a temple dancer who betrayed a kingdom for love. The Argonauts, the mightiest band of warriors the world has ever known. Jason and the Argonauts, a classic adventure story. Brought to the screen through the incredible special effects magic of Dinorama. Jason and the Argonauts, the search that became a legend. Hi, this is Joseph with Isaac, and we are in the middle of the fourth episode, yes, we made it this far, of the Iron Rod podcast. Check out our previous episodes. We discussed such exciting things as Zulu, the movie you should all go watch, though it is not our official movie recommendation today. Yes, absolutely not. And we also discussed Napoleon the First, Napoleon the Third, and even Napoleon the Second, although he was merely stuck around for more than 20 years or so. All that and more can be found on our exciting Iron Rod podcast, where we discuss the history of philosophy as it pertains to tyranny and more things more broadly. And the last thing we recommended was that you listen to Jason. Jason and the Argonauts movie trailer and you watch the movie. Now that's actually a joke because that's not really our movie recommendation because that movie is terrible. Oh God, it's terrible. The, uh, the lip syncing is terrible. The, uh, the, the, the special effects is terrible. Everything is terrible. And I'm glad that the trailer at the end says introducing some special effects thing and they really talk it up. Because it really hasn't aged well. This was obviously made a long time ago in the 1960s. Yes, but the CGI that's not that's no excuse. That's so no terrible. excuse. There, there were good special effects in the 60s. They were just lazy or, or cheap or whatever. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because this is you know some people consider this the greatest movie ever made. This is like received such amazing praise at the time and still today, and you know it maybe has some amazing you know themes. Although it's odd that Hercules just like decides to like land on the island and say okay I'm. Not joining you any further. 
I'm not sure if that's canon for the real audition. That's pretty much canon. Oh, that's oh and he and in the original and in the original story he wears a dress. So, you know, make uh, of it what you will. Does he wear a dress in the movie? I'm trying to remember. I have no I have no idea. Uh, the worst CGI is the skeleton. I'm not sure if the skeletons are they're so terrible or the harpies. But it's the CGI. I have is, no idea. I repressed the memory. <laughs> but definitely, if you want to have a good laugh, go watch that. Uh, we will get to our real movie recommendation at the end of this segment. Um, but yes, yeah, so we try, try to do a movie recommendation. Um, we also have a quote. Let me just do one of our quotes. And this is from... This is from the play... Uh, uh, Prometheus Bound. And we, we're talking about tyranny, and his, the, this is the, by the playwright. He says, For none is free but Zeus. So this is interesting. So maybe in a tyrannical society, only the tyrant is free. Even though, you know, Greek philosophers actually made a claim that the tyrant is the, is the least free in the unfree society he created because he has to live in fear constantly because everybody in the society lives in fear of one man, him. But he is afraid of everyone in the society. So, uh, but this is a really, really novel argument that Polyb- that Polybius is making or was the Aristotle? Uh, no, I no, think... no, uh, 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 Yes, but I sca- but I still say- I sees it. Uh, the way that uh, that Charlie Chaplin famously said it in the in the Great Dictators, dictators seek to free themselves, not the not their people. I actually do not remember that line, though I have seen that movie. Um, yes, but we are talking about Zeus and we're talking about his tyranny and the first version of events that we discussed in some detail is the one that people are familiar with in terms of mythology, uh, Uranus, and then his... Son, Cronus. Son, Cronus, and then Zeus. And Zeus himself has to have this issue for the rest of his reign where he's worried that the prophecy will continue and there are at least three uh, revolutions or coup attempts against him. But what you want to discuss at all the other version of events having so to do with we Cronus. know that in the really really ancient time uh, or, or as we or as we put it uh the what was the ancient world for the ancient world zeus was not for, was not the son of rhea and Cronus. his mother was thetis the goddess of the deep now by the time homer is around uh the uh the uh thetis is no longer his mother she is his daughter and a very loyal daughter who, who saves him from a coup attempt by his, uh, his wonderful wife, Hera, and his wonderful brother, uh, uh, Pose- uh, Poseidon, and his equally wonderful daughter, uh, Athena. Now, is this the coup attempt where they tie him up and they, yes. they, put, him, they put him to sleep and then they're fighting who should be in charge? Yes, or it might be that one, or it might be the one... It's not clear in the... In the Iliad, if she helped him escape, or if she warned him ahead of time so he could, because it's mentioned in the same segment of the Iliad that he punished Hera once, in, in very severely for disobeying him or rebelling against him, or something along those lines. It's very, it's very vague. But uh, at any rate, it's clear that Thetis is a loyal, is a good loyal daughter. But in the really ancient myth, she was not a real, she was a good loyal daughter. She was a good loyal mother. And he was a king, and it's not clear, I'm not sure who was his father in the myth, but he didn't receive his kingdom from anyone else. He was, he was the king of the universe by right. And he, 
and it's implied in his name. The name Zeus is a bastardization of the word Dios. Dios in ancient, ancient, ancient Greek meant ram. Uh, as as a, in the animal. As in the animal, yes, as in the male sheep. Because uh, the proper function of a lead, of a king is to be, uh, is to lead his people, lead his flock, and to, uh, and to take care of them and to defend them. Uh, but he was also worshipped as Lycaios, the wolf-like. Now, later, uh, at the time that we know in the, as the classical period, uh, the only people still worshipping Zeus as Lycaios were the Arcadians, which were people who still li- Greek people who still live in the, in the mountainous center of, uh, of, of, the Peloponne- of the Peloponnese, which is the, uh, the, uh, the peninsula uh, at the bottom of, of Greece. So I'm thinking that anthropologically, sometimes you have a situation where the you know, mountain people are more attuned to their heritage because they're less civilized and so on. Is that, is that what's going on over Well, here? It's, beca- it's because the reason people stopped worshipping as Lycaios is because uh, other people invaded, uh, people we call the Dorian Greeks. They were probably from the north uh, and they invaded Greece and essentially they started what we call the Dark Ages of Greece and, and this is around 3,000 years ago or do you have a more yes, precise Yes, exa- uh, we can't put a precise time on it but essentially the, the remnants of the original Greeks who, who were in the Peloponnese uh, either escaped to, uh, to the last standing bastion of pre-Dorian Mycenae civilization which was Athens or to the mountains so in the mountains they continue to to practice the traditional religion in in Athens the uh they integrated into the local population into into the into their rights and uh what else can you tell me about uh this ancient Zeus who I'm not sure if you're saying this directly but it seems to be implied that he's more sovereign than tyrant he's a god of, he's a god of order he 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 protects the the family he protects the king uh, the kinsman he protects the uh, the king of course the the legitimately the annex he protects the city he protects the state uh the the he protects markets he protects the granaries he protects uh the guest and the guest right and the and the ambassador and he protects the friendly foreigners in general who needs to be received kindly he protects Law, it protects etic- uh, battlefield etiquette, it protects truces. Sounds like a swell fellow. Oh, no. yeah, yeah, but he's also, but, but he also the guy who, as Lycaios, tears and shreds the enemy to pieces. Well, I'm sure the enemy had it coming. But yes, of course, because of course, if you, if you truly love order, you will destroy the enemies of order. Of, or at least the order to which you, you are part of. So he basically performs the functions of a king. And now, this may or may not be um, known or may more significant, but before you spoke about the Greeks in their understanding, seeing the deities bringing order out of chaos. Yes. Is this the same over here? Was there a chaos, a primordial force first, and order was forged from that? Or is that not clear? As we said, the, in, the, uh, in the other myth, in the most no- well-known myth, what was in the beginning was just chaos. Chaos is, nothing, is nothingness. Chaos, there is nothing in chaos because there is no order. 
There's no reason. Is that associated with the Hebrew Tovo, or is that something else? It's a it's a common theme in it's a common theme in the ancient world. Almost all the ancients felt that before the the world was what what that the world means means order. So before order, there must have been chaos. There must have been something which does not answer to our reason. Now the Jews uh, in the Bible is the only one who said. Uh, in the beginning, God created. That God was before the world. God was in the beginning. God who who imposes reason and order, and and, and acts in a in a methodological ma- manner. He goes from the first day to the seventh day, and, and each day he creates something, uh, a different category of things. So this, is, but the the other ancient peoples did, did not believe in that. They believed that at the beginning there was not there was nothing discernible to human reason and or something that have any interest in reason or order and the birth of heaven and earth was accidental and spontaneous although and this is a top of another time there's always two strains of thinking in 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 greek uh let's say thought or philosophy um over a span of 500 to a thousand years uh the strain of of wild emotion, erraticism, cult of Bachness or Dionysus, and the scientific uh, reasoned one. And I, it's possible to say that over time, the Greeks did try to uh, forge an order or did try to thrust upon order, but they were always coming across the other side of the coin, which was this lawlessness and orderlessness. Yes, because Greece is, even in the classical period, Greece is a very lawless country. Within each polis, each city-state, you have law and order of a sort, and each city-state is very proud of its own laws. But between of between any each of them, there is no there is no real law. Even Athens, which was most famous for its for its order and for its constitution, when they came to fight the Melians, they say to them, uh, "Among among states, the the strong do what they can, and the." And the weak suffer what they must. Very good. And I think um, you know that sort of thinking has uh, definitely gone through the ages. You know, Plato might makes right all the way to Bismarck says the uh, the strong are always right or something like that. So th- this sort of thinking is definitely hasn't changed. I believe. Uh, what else could you tell us about this ancient thinking of of Zeus? Uh, god of order and the evolution to the uh, more capricious tyrannical one so we see that so how the so how did these two myth diverged it was because the greek greece of the mycene period which appeared before the greek dark ages was a very orderly place there was uh, we actually have found some archives in which uh, the the tre- world treasures are uh, are all uh, named in order, numbered to to the last to the last pig and cow, and and great and 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 good accounting is always a good accounting, very good accounting, and and the annex is of course always at the top of things. He's the one issuing the reports. He's the one telling everyone where they need to uh, where they need to go and what they need to do. But then something happened. The Mycenaean civilization. civilization collapses with the possible exception of Athens and until today we don't necessarily know exactly how it collapsed 
how it collapsed. The, the common idea is that the Dorian invasion somehow was responsible because always invade... Uh, just to clarify invade. to the audience, the, 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 the main Mycenaean civilization is in an island. Yeah, I think it, you, you, or am I, am I, Mino, you're talking about the Mino. Uh, they were Mino. before the Mycenae. Uh, they were before the Mycenae. So that, that's actually when we talk about the Greek Dark Age, we're talking about the second Greek Dark oh, Age. Okay, okay. The first Greek Dark Age is when the Greeks themselves invaded. Invaded. Those were, these were a culture group that did not exist before because the people who dwelt in Greece beforehand were not Greek. Okay, so Mycenaeans is in Greece prosper. Proper Mycenae is old Greece. Is old Greece? And this is maybe three thousand two hundred years ago or something like that. Uh, th- and then we talk. Yes, we talk. We're talking about the the Greeks invade Greece. They create the Mycenae civilization, and then come the Greek Dark Ages, and then come the the new Greece, which we which we know because that's uh the the new Greece that creates Homer and creates uh and creates eventually create, give us Socrates and Pericles and all the other lo- lovely, lovely people. And Homer is really the first writer, and this is 2,800 years ago. Well, we are not sure if he wrote anything. We know that he was a rhapsodos, or a teacher of songs. So that's actually what rhapsodos means, and, uh, and that's what he calls himself. So he is the first one to create, or at least he's the oldest one, to give us a coherent creation, a coherent epic poem which have a beginning, an e- a middle, and an ending, and, uh, and of which we can say, uh, and who actually tries to tell us something. And the thing that he's trying to tell us is, the world has gone terribly wrong. Terribly, terribly wrong. How could the world have gone, had gone so wrong? The answer is, after all, we believe, Zeus is, is, is upon the throne. Zeus, who believes in all, who is the god of order, who protects order and law and all the other lovely things, who's supposed to destroy the enemies of order. The answer is, even though Homer does not say it openly, Zeus, not only is Zeus not uh, a good king, he's not even a legitimate king. He's a king who usurped his power by overthrowing someone else who also was not a legitimate king who also came to power by overthrowing the real primordial king, Uranus, heaven. And, uh, and he adopts fully, he doesn't describe the, uh, the, the succession of things, but Hesiod, who was a contemporary of Homer, actually describes the myth that we described of, uh, of the succession from, from chaos to, Ura- to, to Uranus, to Cronus, to, to, uh, to Zeus. And... Uh, and they both agree that the world is in a bad shape. Hesiod actually said outright, we live in a, we live in, in the Iron Age. And by Iron Age, he doesn't mean that people use iron. He means that, that we live in an inferior age, as inferior as iron is to gold and silver. Yes, uh, that reminds me of the, uh, the dream from Daniel. And there is another, there's a quote that is very good that actually I think I put at the beginning of the, of the podcast uh, uh, in, in one version. This is, another, this is another translation. It comes when, so what is the subject of the, uh, of, of the Iliad, the great creation? So all the, the entire uh, corpus of works of Homer, the Iliad, the Odyssey, and some of the, what is commonly called the Homeric hymn, hymns, is about tyranny, because 
the Iliad is about the tyranny of Agamemnon on one hand and and Zeus on the and Zeus on the other hand, on a, or at least on the other hand, on a higher level. The Odyssey is about the tyranny of Odysseus, and uh, and uh, because what is it? Because uh, they are, all the rules that we mentioned, Zeus, Agamemnon, and Odysseus are completely uninterested in the welfare of the subjects. They are interested. In, they are interested in their own welfare. Odysseus, as you recall, comes back home. When he comes back home, all his his entire crew is dead. He clearly did not bring benefit to the people under his command in his ship. Uh, the uh, Zeus uh, Agamemnon. The entirety of the story of Agamemnon of of the Iliad is not about the Trojan War uh, as much as about one thing that happened in the Trojan War, which is Agamemnon. So when the Greeks land, uh, so the Greeks. Uh, raided a temple of Apollo of Apollo and they took and, uh, and they took captive the daughter of the priest uh, and then he was Briseis and Achilles uh, one uh, and Achilles uh, wanted to realize to realize his uh, his rights upon her as his captive which means he wanted to rape her senseless uh, Agamemnon came to the rescue and they said no 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 you can't just rape the daughters of priests of Apollo. I should rape uh, this daughter of the priest of Apollo because I am the I am the high king. I am the annex of all the Greeks. Therefore, I this therefore she's my captive now. I am taking her and uh, and and I'm going going to rape her senseless. Th- thank you very much. Now, uh, Achilles doesn't like it at all. He viewed it as a tyrannical things to do. Not at all the proper thing for, for a high king to do. And, uh, and he just uh, goes to, he says, oh yes, okay, I'm, I'll, I'll be in my tent. Oh yes, we have this battle tomorrow, I understand, I'm not coming. I'm not coming, I'm not coming, I'll be in my tent. Uh, call, uh, call me when, uh, when, you, when, you, when you decide to, to honor my, uh, my rights as a, as a lord of the Myrmidians. And, uh, and, uh, and then, and, and more than that, he actually prays to his mother, Thetis, the goddess of the deep, which, as mentioned, may or may not be the mother, the mother of Zeus, but actually in this version she's the daughter of Zeus. Uh, and, th- and, Thetis, and Thetis comes to Zeus in the assembly of the gods, and she tells him, look, you owe me one, because once I saved you from a coup. So I want you to make sure that the Greeks don't win the upcoming battle, so the Greek so the Greeks would see that without my son Achilles, they can't do anything. So and uh, and Zeus uh, and Zeus mulls it over because he because uh, Hera hates the the Trojans and the uh, and uh, and she already thinks that he helps the Trojans too much. But he decides, you know what? As as that is say, she she did him a solid once, and uh, and he will do it never, and he will do it. And if the other gods. Uh, uh, opposed to it, tough luck. He is the king, and here uh, is a quote. He spoke the son of Cronos and nodded his head with the dark brows, and the immortally anointed hair of the great god swept from his divine head, and all Olympus has shaken. And then Hera makes some no- makes some uh, noises, and then Hephaestus reminds her what happened to the last time she defied she she defied Zeus, and here we come. To the uh, to something we brought up in our introductory uh, episode when we said 
that the tyrant does not need to actually land a blow with the iron rod. It's enough that he shakes the iron rod because everybody remembers what the iron rod is capable of doing once it lands. So nobody takes the risk. So a tyrant rules by fear. So yeah, uh, Zeus is still uh, epitaphed as the annex, as the legitimate king of the gods, but he behaves as a tyrant. He acts according to his own uh, interests, against the interest and the, and, the, and the counsel of all the other gods and all, and, and all men. And he assists one man against all the people, all of his people, for his own selfish reasons. And, when, and to push through his decisions, he uses fear. And in the end, um, just to, to give the epilogue of the story, Achilles does make his point, because the Greeks are defeated, and everyone says, oh, we really need Achilles in order to win anything around here. Yeah. Let's, speaking of, of Zeus and his relationship to the other gods, the actual movie recommendation that we have is Clash of the Titans, 2010, uh. which I think... There's a very fascinating job betraying this entire world. And one of the greatest lines in movie history is said in that, and that is release the Kraken. So here we're going to play a bit of a soundbite from the video, maybe 30, 40 seconds approximately with that soundbite. And we'll see you on the other side. Okay. And I want to point out that Zeus in this movie is very much like the original Zeus. He's the god of order, and if he does something bad, he does so very, very, very reluctantly. But sometimes you have to do what you have to do. Brother, it is time for the mortals to pay. My child waits to do your will. us. Release the Kraken! Hi, this is Joseph with Isaac, and we are in the next and last segment of the fourth episode of the Iron Rod podcast. We're discussing, and we have discussed, Zeus and Kronos. And I have just an interesting idea I want to run by you, that sometimes... You have to view the tyranny of, of any sort of earthly king, or in this case, a, a pagan deity, not always from the view of how the tyrant behaves, but how we view the tyrant, and man's relationship with the tyrant, or even with a higher power. So I was thinking I would run by this story of, from the encyclopedia with you, and uh, this has to do with the concept of sacrifice. And I think sacrifice is something which is really not a fashion today. You tell people to sacrifice today and you remind people of ancient sacrifices and they look at you funny because it seems too difficult or too painful and what's the point? But I think there is uh, just tremendous primordial, uh, you know, fundamental truths and, and necessities even in civilization to accustom yourself to sacrifice. And at the same time, it's a slippery slope as to how far it goes. But I want to hear your thoughts on this story. So, this is a ritual, I'm reading from the encyclopedia, fascinating for the glimpse it affords of very old world thought, is that of the polio, the yearly sacrifice of Zeus Polius on the Acropolis of Athens. In this, an ox was slaughtered with ceremonious 
were ceremonies unique in Greece. The, the priest who slew the ox fled and remained in exile for a period, and the axe that was used was tried, condemned, and flung into the sea. The hide of the slain ox was stuffed with hay, and this effigy of the ox was yoked to the plow and feigned to be alive. Now, I thought that was one of the most interesting, if so, if you, definitely if you read ancient civilizations, you hear about different interesting sacrifices, but this is a very odd one. And do you have any thoughts on this or on the general subject of sacrifices in the ancient world? Well, uh, as, a, as a matter of fact, the, uh, the, uh, the trial had, mo had more stages because at the beginning, the, uh, at the beginning, the priest would, of course, would have been caught, and the priest would have stood to trial. But then, of course, the jury would come to the conclusion that the priest is not, is not at fault, the, because he just fall, he, just, he couldn't have done anything without, um, without, the, without the crowd giving him the ox and the, and the axe. Now, then the crowd would stand trial. Is the crowd at fault? No, no, the crowd is not at fault, because the crowd did nothing. So then, who is at fault? The axe is at fault. I'm, I'm skipping a few, a few stages, but essentially the, the axe is at fault because the axe is the thing that actually killed the ox. So, uh, so and then the axe is guilty and the axe is thrown into the sea. That's actually a very good uh, exercise in what we call differentiated between uh, primary causes and secondary causes. And, uh, but it also was a way of which in in which the Athenians uh, emphasized that, uh, respons that nobody is responsible for anything unless they actually did, unless they actually did it. Nobody can claim I was just uh, a tool in the hands of somebody else because guess what? Without the tool, nobody can do anything. And this is and this is because Athens is a post-tyrannical society. The Athenian democracy was first established by Solomon, but, 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 uh, but then it, were, it went extinct under a tyrant named Pisistratos and his sons. But then there was a revolution in Athens. The, the, uh, one of, the sons of, uh, one of his, the sons of Pisistratos was murdered, the other son fled, and democracy was re-established under Cleisthenes. And, uh, and the point was, in a tyrant, for a tyranny to survive, the tyrant needs people who, who will do his dirty work, who will be his axe. And that, that's the point. You should refuse to be the axe or refuse to be the iron rod. Because as centuries and centuries and centuries later, the French philosopher Etienne de Boethi said, the tyrant has no power that the people don't give him. Just refuse, refuse to be the axe. Because guess what? When the... Uh, when the tyrant is when the tyrant is fled from the city, you will be left behind to be flung into the sea. Fascinating. I guess sacrifice will be a conversation another time. But you reminded me, in terms of being the axe, we are currently uh, seeing the Olympics in China, which is a frightful display. I haven't watched a minute of it. And once in a while, some one of the uh, athletes or sportsmen from the U.S. or elsewhere will say, I don't want to be the axe, and they'll speak out against the tyranny of China. But going back to ancient times, the Olympic Committee, in fact, in ancient Greece, a long time ago, was in fact responsible, I think, for creating one of the seven wonders of the world. And that's today our art form. Mm -hmm. We try to recommend art, and 
That's the statue of Zeus in Olympia. By the way, the statue of Zeus in Olympia was uh, commissioned by the Aliens, which were uh, the people who were in control of the town of Olympia at the time, where the sacred games were held, uh, at, the, at the foot of Mount Olympus. And they, it's very interesting because they were rivals of the Athenians, but they commissioned the, the but to glorify themselves, and uh, they commissioned an Athenian sculptor by the name of Phidias. But Phidias actually, uh, he inscribes into this, uh, into the base of the, of the statue, which is a great statue of Zeus sitting on a throne, these, the, the lines from Homer that we read before, uh, which are basically denouncing the Zeus tyranny. So in a way, it's, uh, it, it might be a barb against the aliens, because uh, who, who a good Athenians would see as uh, tyrannical, because they were an oligarchy, and against, and against Athens was for democracy, in a fashion. Or he might be, uh, or, but of course, many people at that point accused, uh, accused Athens itself as a state of being a tyrannical state because it forced its allies to be allied to her. But, uh, so we are not sure where the barb is aimed at, but it's a, but it's a neat uh, thing. Unfortunately, the statue was destroyed, but we have some replicas, we, we have some replicas and some... Uh, Reconstructions that were made from ancient descriptions. By the way, the interestingly enough, one of the f first people to uh, to abuse the statue was the Emperor Caligula, who ordered the uh, who ordered the head of uh, the statue removed and replaced with his own head. <laughs> and according to legend, when they already broke the neck and were about to remove the head, the the uh, the, uh, the 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 the, the the workers heard a terrible thunder that sound something between a laugh and uh, between laughter and uh, and, uh, and and a roar and they understood that they be, that they better leave the the, sta uh, the statue of Zeus alone. Interesting. Um, interesting how yeah this is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world how it survived into the Roman period. Naturally, it among along with the Five others are no longer with us, but definitely uh, Google it. Try to see if you can get a picture. Definitely something fascinating to connect with our ancient heritage. Um, anything else you would like to mention on, on the subject? Do we have book recommendations in addition to what we already gave in the first segment? Well, we talked about the works of Homer, Iliad, Odyssey, and the hymns, and the Homeric hymns. These uh, Theogony and Theogony, which is connected uh, by Hesiod, which is connected to uh, to days and works, in which essentially Hesiod gives us early Greek morality. And uh, whenever you read Socrates, who questions the traditional morality of Greece or of Athens, to find what is that traditional morality, what uh, the average Greek person believed is moral and right to do, look at uh, days and works. Because it describes what it's proper to do every day, every day of every day, uh, of the year, and what works to do, and what kind of action one should take, uh, in various situations. And it's a beautiful poem, and uh, and of course the Theogony is all about the gods, how they came to be. And again, the gods are not presented in the most uh, in favorable favorable light, because 
Hestio did not feel did not feel that the gods are doing uh, a very good job at me at protecting order. So it's up to men to protect order. And yes, Hestio does call men to pray to the gods and to sacrifice to them. But at the end of the day, it's, it's the job of men to make sure that things are in order. But we can all see. But here's the problem: if you believe that it's your that you are capable of bringing order to the world, uh, then a tyrant can say, "I can bring order to this to the world or to to this particular city state, and I will impose this order upon everybody else." And as a result, what ensues is actually chaos because. The tyrant can enforce his vision of order only by fear, and the, and fear is primordial in all things primordial. Returning to chaos, and the, at least this is the Greek way of thinking. Yes, which actually reminds me of the Greek view of history. And as a teaser, hopefully we will in the future discuss the different philosophies of history, the Whig view of history versus the Greek. The Greek is a cyclical understanding of things, which uh, appeals to many. Uh, anything else you would like to add before we finish? I think we covered many of our basic points. Uh, well, basically, why did we do this entire episode? We did it because there's a reason that whenever we talk about tyranny, we use the Greek word, which is, of course, as we said, about a word for, from a different language. It's because it's due to this brave... Uh, Homeric idea that we have an idea of a, of a bad behaving ruler standing in a different category from a good behaving ruler. That we are not talking about. That we're talking about a ruler who does bad things. We're not talking about. We're not talking about a tyrant. We're not talking about a ruler that commits crimes. We're talking about something else entirely. Talking about the tyrant. So a Greek person would say. It's bad to kill, to kill your legitimate king, but it's a good thing to kill tyrants. As a matter of fact, killing tyrants was considered to be a, public, a form of public service. Uh, of course, no tyrant ever defines himself as a tyrant, but that's besides the point. Uh, Just as a security measure. Yes, uh, and, uh, but for example, in, uh, in the Bible, in the, Bible the, the Hebrew language does not have really a word for a tyrant. The word the Hebrew language, modern Hebrew uses, Aritz does not mean a tyrant in the Bible. It means a punisher. To laarots means to punish. For example, for example, God Himself sometimes come laarots the earth to, to punish the earth. But uh, and the word rodan is a completely uh, is a complete neologism. Uh, but uh, we see in the Bible that when kings behave as tyrants, they get punished. But they get punished by a higher power. By God, because the Jews, despite all the turmoil of the, uh, all the turmoil in their lands, they believed that the world is still orderly. They did not blame the gods. They could not blame God, the singular, just God. So they so they blamed themselves, and they and they looked inside for moral, um, for how to improve themselves, moral, moral uh, morally. Because they say we must be the cause of disorder, so it's an interesting way in which two civilizations, who actually uh, created our civilization between them, both came to the same conclusion from different perspectives. 
the Jews decided that if the world is, is in disorder, it must be our fault because we are the ones to blame because we can't blame God. And the Greeks said, well, the gods are, un are fickle and unjust and tyrannical, so it's up to us to create order. And between them, we got the notion of tyranny, which, uh, and therefore, we must say again, uh, don't be the axe. This is it for this week. We will be with you again next week. And for now, remember... More au tyran.